This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to the Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast from the Episcopal Church about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millien. In this episode, Bishop Curry talks with legendary leader Ruby Sells about her long and enduring work for civil rights and freedom in the United States. The to discuss how she was introduced to the movement, her search for a calling, and the potential of the Episcopal Church to lead in honest racial justice and reconciliation. I have always believed that the struggle for justice is a struggle towards redemption and not retribution. And that the moment you say that you're going to work for justice, the moment you sign on to, to upbuilding a new world coming as Isaiah predicted, you have to imagine the good in people and to figure out ways to call them to their highest selves. To go, on the way of love is to cross boundaries, listen deeply, and live like Jesus. To do any of these things, and to have any hope of healing, we need to be able to tell each other the truth and go, as Ruby Sell says, where it hurts. Ruby, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to be with you this way. Thank you for being on the way of love. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to have this conversation with you this morning. I, I have to tell you, now I hope this doesn't embarrass you, but uh, PBS on Religion and Ethics Weekly a few years ago referred to you with these words. She is a legendary civil rights activist. Now you are more than that, I know. But why did they say that? Well, actually, I think that they say that because we have a way of not understanding the scope of the movement of which I was a part. Mm -hmm. It was not just a civil rights movement. It was a freedom movement. It was a movement that provided a redemptive moment, not only for Black Americans, but also for white Americans. It was a movement not only for civil rights, but for human dignity. It was a movement that that released Black people from the terror of white supremacist violence. It was a movement that rearranged our relationship with God, each other, and all aspects of creation in the South. So I think people say civil rights because they, they really, the, the scope of the movement is not fully understood. It is not understood that first and foremost, the Southern Freedom Movement was a spiritual movement. Mm-hmm. It was not a material transactional movement. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a spiritual movement. And I, I do think that it's important to contextualize that movement within the context of a community. And so I'm the product of a black, a southern black community where generations of elderly African Americans kept tilling generations for the day of freedom when there was no evidence that that day would ever come into being but they kept on tilling. So I come from a community where our pragmatic optimism is legendary. We grew up in a similar uh, era in the sense that I remember that word freedom was a holy word. Yes. And it, and it meant more than being unchained. Yes. You know, Freedom has always been a constant struggle with African-Americans. It's always from the moment that the European-Americans put chains on Africans. 
and put them on those slave ships coming to America. Freedom was a contested territory. So Black, all of our struggle, our, our long struggle in this country has been a freedom struggle. The ability to, to be able to move freely in society, the ability to be able to, to have access to human and civil rights, the ability to, you see Bishop, even during enslavement, during enslavement, to even think about freedom was the capital punishment. Yes, yes. And so that black people have always been involved in a dynamic movement towards freedom. And freedom, as I said, has always been a contested territory between black Americans and white Americans. Because white Americans have always imagined that black freedom has lessened white freedom. You became actively involved. Um, I think you were a student at Tuskegee. Yes. And you were probably 17 or 18? Yes. And, and, and you left school and joined the movement, so to speak? Well, actually, what happened is I, I, I just, I didn't really officially leave school. I just stopped going to school. And what happened was my dean found out that I was absent. You know, in those days, you could not be off campus without your parents' permission. Uh-huh. And so I was off campus without my parents' permission down in Lowndes County, Alabama. And the dean found out that I was not in, in the dorm and sent someone down to Lowndes County to get me. And I came to came back to school. And she said to me, in that voice that she had that was very, very strict, uh-huh. she said to me, you know that I can expel you. You know that. You should not be down in Lowndes County, Alabama without your, without your parents' permission. And then she said something quite astonishing. She said, okay, you can go back down there and, and fight for freedom. And I didn't get expelled. Did she really say? Yes, she did. And don't that forget, is- our dean, I went on my first demonstration at Tuskegee because Dean Phillips, who was our young dean, rented buses with Tuskegee students to go to the Capitol. So uh-huh. Tuskegee's administration was very much in sync with the freedom fire that was spreading across the South. Mm. That That's remarkable because I, I would have expected the opposite reaction. I, I Well, you did, I did too. I was terrified <laughs> when she said, <laughs> I thought, oh God, my parents are gonna kill me. <laughs> when did they find out what you were doing? Well, Stokely Carmichael took me home one time. Um, I had to go home to get some more clothes. And when he showed up at my door, that's when my mother knew. Oh, she knew at that point. (laughs) She knew at that point. So you were involved with SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, voter registration, March from Selma to Montgomery? Yes. So Stokely Carmichael came to our English class at Tuskegee and did a presentation about the work that they were doing in Lowndes County, Alabama. And I became fascinated with the idea because I was already a rebel, except I was rebelling in the wrong direction, playing big whist all night and and not doing my work and just sort of hanging out and having a great old time. Uh Because, um, you know, Tuskegee during the era that I was there, 
you play bid whisk all night practically. And so I was a bid, but Stokely, after hearing Stokely, I decided that I would go to Lowndes County. A friend of mine and I, we decided to go to Lowndes County. And the first day that I was there, they happened to go, uh, they were going to register black people at the, uh, at the registration office. Mm-hmm. And so when we got there, the white sheriff pulled a gun on Stokely and said, nigger, tonight you'll be in hell. And Stokely didn't miss a beat. He said to the, to the sheriff, and tonight hell will be integrated. And mm-hmm. that, that was it for me. From then on, I knew I was going to work with Snick because mm-hmm. I had never seen such courage. I was mm-hmm. amazed that, that he could stand up in the face of a gun and not be afraid. What do you have? I mean, you may not know the answer to this, but why didn't you just go back and play bid with? Because that was the universal. Uh, oh game. no, because I was looking for a calling. I was looking for something. I was. I had always in my life, in a very subtle kind of way, in a very unexpressed way. I was always. I was looking for a place to matter. I did not want to have the conventional life of joining a sorority and and getting married and having two children and going back to Columbus, Georgia. I had already, in high school, read the Beat Poets, so I had imagined that I would end up in Greenwich Village being a writer. So I, so I, but this, this really, this movement business really spoke deeply to me, and it echoed a commitment that I always had towards for Black people and for the notion of Black freedom. Mm. So it found me. Yeah. So where's that coming from? I think that came from the fact that my father, uh, first of all, my father was a very, very insightful, very analytical, and a very intelligent man. My mm-hmm. brothers and I started reading Plato and Spinoza and Wilderon in my father's library when we were children. We didn't know what we were reading, but we uh-huh. read him. And my father had been in the Korean War, and he had a profound analysis about white supremacy, about violence, about just war theory, and mm-hmm. all those things. So, and he was very articulate in terms of critiquing the inequities of being in the army and not being able to vote in, in Columbus, Georgia. So mm-hmm. I and my mother, in her way, was also a rebel. And so I grew up in, in a household where people were very articulate about civil and human rights. Uh-huh. And also my high school, my principal, Mr. Charleston, always told me, because I talked a lot in school, he always told me, oh, Ruby Sells, you're going to be a great civil rights lawyer. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> he called you out. <laughs> That calling is deep. You know, there's the old theory, one of the theories of the civil rights movement, at least in the 50s, part of the emergence has to do with blacks in the military. Yes. They came home. They went away to fight for somebody else's freedom and came home and said, well, what about us? What about us? And I grew up between Columbus, Georgia, sort of a schizophrenic uh, life between integrated Fort Benning Yes. and segregated Columbus. But what I also bore witness to is that, don't forget, many of the Black soldiers who returned from Korea had post-traumatic stress. Yeah. 
and, and, and to witness all of what they had given and how much they loved the country, but the country didn't love them, also struck me as a child because mm -hmm. my father too had post-traumatic stress and mm -hmm. we had to go to the Veterans Hospital in Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I would see all of these soldiers who had been in, in World War II and, and the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And I saw them as being set aside and disposable and having given everything for a country that gave them very little. So all of those things impressed me growing up as a child. I mean, I didn't have the words for them, for what I was feeling, but, but they were percolating in my brain, just looking for the language to express my feelings. You know that old song, Oh My Head, I Hear Music in the Air, There Must Be a God Somewhere. Yes, absolutely. You were hearing something. I was hearing it, and, and, and the rhythm, once I heard the sound, the rhythm became familiar to me, and, and there was nothing else I wanted to ever do in my life but to live into this call. You've had an interesting journey and relationship with the Episcopal Church. Yes. Now, does that go back to those days or later? I mean, does that go back to Jonathan Daniels? Does that go back to something else later on? Where did that, where did that crossroads happen? Well, you know, I grew up in the South, and the South was segregated, and we had one Episcopal church across the street from the first African Baptist church of which I was a member, and that uh -huh. was a high Baptist church. Mm -hmm. And with the doctors and lawyers and the nurses and, and the, the black middle class attended that church. But directly across the street was an Episcopal church, St. Mary's Episcopal Church. Oh, yeah. And it always has, it struck me that it never had more than 25 people uh, attending the church. And one of my best friends, mm -hmm. her father was, they attended the Episcopal Church. Uh -huh. But it had no meaning to me because it was such a small denomination. And in the, and in the South, the Baptists and the AME churches where Black people dominated. Right. And so it was only when I met Jonathan that I began to understand that there was something called an Episcopal church and that it began to have some shape and meaning for me. But it still was not a church that I was particularly interested in uh -huh. because it seemed so white. And uh -huh. I... I love black songs. Uh -huh. I don't like the black sermons that go on for 50 or 60 minutes. So I'm, I'm partial to, to homilies. But uh -huh. I love the black songs and, and the idea of being away from that liturgy was mm -hmm. a bit too much for me. So when Jonathan was killed, and I met a lot of Episcopalians who came down to Lowndes County. And uh -huh. when Jonathan was murdered, I went up to New Hampshire to his funeral, and then on the way down, we stopped because John Tillerson was the uh, head of escrow at that time. Right. And we stopped at his house in Cambridge and went over to EDS. As, but I never thought very deeply about it until one day when I was getting my hair locked and, and, uh -huh. and my beautician's daughter came in. Uh -huh. had a series of problems throughout her life. Mm -hmm. And I asked her a question, where does it hurt? And what she shared with me, I realized was deeper than what civil rights could, could respond to. And I realized that 
I needed a larger language to deal with my call. So I went to, I decided that I wanted to go to seminary to find a larger language to deal with the human condition wow. and, and, and to reconnect back to my spiritual roots. But my journey in the, with the Episcopal Church has not always been a, 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 a smooth journey because I was always vocal about racism in an era when we were thinking that when the country was thinking that it was post-racial. But I always thought that the Episcopal Church had potential. Mm-hmm. And my journey at EDS, when I left EDS, I didn't do anything for a year except go over to the Church of the Savior in the Potter's House. Oh, yeah. And just try to discern the meaning of my journey and what shall, how should I live into my call. And I founded an organization, but I realized in retrospect that I had learned so much in EDS that it took me a year to understand and grasp the significance of what I had learned in EDS. And so it was really important to go away from home and to come back home again. Mm -hmm. When, when you were in college, is this what you'd expected to be doing? What did you expect to be doing? The third, the second Virginia Woolf. Ah. Oh. I expected to be a writer. I expected, my family has always been fascinated with history. Huh. My brother, I have two brothers who are lawyers and they are fascinated with history. As a matter of fact, my brother's running for the mayor of Selma after being in the Alabama legislature uh -huh. uh, at some point in his life. And so we've always had a fascination with history. So I thought I would be writing historical novels. Instead, you've been making history. I never thought that. Mm. I never thought that. I Well, in some ways I thought so, but I also, you know, trying to, we, we, we live in a society where one is forced to choose. So when I was a graduate student at Princeton, my professors would tell me, look, you've got a great mind, but you need to choose between being an academician or being an activist. And so for me, my whole life has, has been a struggle to integrate all parts of myself into yes. a whole and not feel like I have to make a choice between one part of myself. Mm. There, there's a, recently um, the murder of George Floyd um, and all of those who came after and came before, um, going back to Emmett Till and going back even before that, the lynchings and on and on and on, the violent history. Um, you, you experienced and lived through that violence face to face. And, and you lived through both the murder of, of Jonathan Daniels and you've seen, you've seen what uh, recent America saw in the murder of George Floyd the 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 ugly face of inhumanity of white supremacy of the dominance of anybody by anybody else in systems and in persons you saw that did that change you i'm going back to jonathan and that whole context and the rest what you've seen in your life well of course, I was deeply impacted by Jonathan's by by Jonathan's murder by Tom Coleman, and I was so impacted 
and so traumatized that for months I could not speak. I literally withdrew into myself. But it also showed me that life is not dualistic, that history is not dualistic. That Tom Coleman represented the stream in America, the Christo-fascist theme in American society. And Jonathan represented the redemptive nature of American society. Mm. And so that as simultaneously, both of these realities happened. So on that day that Jonathan was murdered, I saw the best and the worst of white America. Yes. And I saw the best and the worst of black America. So yes. it taught me that history is not dualistic as we tend to think of history, but mm. it's really simultaneous. So I have always believed that the struggle for justice is a struggle towards redemption and not retribution. Yes. And that the moment you say that you're going to work for justice, the moment you sign on to, to upbuilding a new world coming, as Isaiah predicted, mm -hmm. you have to imagine the good in people and to figure out ways to call them to their highest selves. Yes. And you can't do this work unless you believe in the good in people and the possibilities of people becoming more fully human. Mm. That does not mean that you don't understand the, 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 the ugly, you don't understand the terrible history of white violence, but it's really important that in looking at white violence, that you look at it in a spiritual sense and you, you ask white people to look at the, it as a spiritual malformation that mm -hmm. begins in the white community and spreads outward. And that they, and so the question is, how do they make the, their dry bones live again? Yeah. And make them understand that while it is a material advantage, while transactionally, there are benefits to being white. Mm -hmm. But spiritually, it is not a privilege to inherit a death-driven system that creates spiritual malformation and social perversity. So the movement calls people to a higher self, to have white Americans, as well as black people who internalize racism, to understand that first and foremost, it is not charity work that we do for others, but it is work that we do for ourselves so that we might be born again, yeah. so that we might be transformed. And so that we do the inner work to change our outward, outward journey. And so that as I've seen the violence, I am convinced that nothing short of a spiritual revolution will change the outward manifestation of white violence. And I think that instead of just dismissing white people and saying that they're and and and, and just saying that they are not redeemable, mm -hmm. is to really ask the fundamental question: where does it hurt? And to get them to really name their hurt and to give them a theological language that touches their hurt. For example, we live in a world today where 30% of white men own 95% of the wealth. And that means that there's only 5% of the wealth left for the rest of the globe to share. Billions of people to have to try to divide up 5%. So that means that the value of whiteness for ordinary white people does not carry the same value that it once did. And so once you understand that, you understand that the rage comes from a sense of displacement 
and you understand that and how the the guardians of, of society have have always manipulated white rage away from them onto the backs of people of color. Mm. And so that we have to begin to not just say, oh God, those those racists, mm-hmm. but to try to understand because we, we have to get down to the bottom line. And we have to in theology, if if people who are spiritual leaders give up on the possibility of a person's redemption, uh-huh. then what is the purpose of the theology? What is what does it mean to be a spiritual guide when you come to the process thinking that let me just say it this way. America has always had two streams of reality. Uh-huh. One stream is always tended towards democracy, and the other stream is always flowed toward Christo-fascism, and yeah. that has been the Southern stream. Yeah. And so that, yes, I'm very upset about George Floyd, but I don't think that George Floyd, this has been trending Ever right. since Eric Gardner, since Trayvon Martin. And right. so that we're not looking at a moment. We're looking at a continuity where right. where, Chris, where all of these events finally came to a high crescendo and crystallized with the nation ever since Occupy Wall Street. The nation has been struggling to find its pro-democracy voice. Hmm. The Million Women's March, the Million Man, the Million Man March, the war against the uh, protests against Iraq. Ever mm-hmm. since 1970s, this country has been struggling to find its pro-democracy voice. And we have to look at movement as a stream and not a moment. Uh-huh. And part of what happens, Bishop, is that we're taught to, to look for instant gratification. Yeah. And in looking for in, instant gratification, we miss the small victories. And so that we've had many small victories that we have not appreciated. And because we have not understood that small victories lead to the ultimate, ultimate big victory, we have devolved into a hopelessness. And the problem with hopelessness is that it creates a sort of ingratitude, not only to the people who are creating change, but also to God. Mm. And so I, I think that we have to understand that since the 1970s, we've been having small victories. Yeah. So I look at the murder of George Floyd as, as a spiritual malformation that lies at the very heart of a culture of whiteness, which I think is the highest form of idolatry. And as mm-hmm. someone who's committed to a spiritual, to spiritual renewal and redemption, my job is to try to figure out a way to get to that. Where do you see small victories in a movement toward freedom? Why should Christians be particularly attentive to this struggle? Is that where theologies for a 21st century is coming from? Yes. We have to, for example, I don't say, I'm not an anti-racist because Uh a racist is a person. And so that means that when you're an anti-racist, you are creating a system of antithesis. You are against somebody. I'm I'm, I'm pro-justice, which means that 
I'm I'm anti-racism. I'm anti-oppression, but I'm not an anti-racist because I don't, if you start building by being against somebody, the world that you create will continue to be a contentious world against a person. Hmm. So I'm not against a person. I'm against the system. And I think that these are important lessons. And language is very important for the uh-huh. 21st century. What is the good news for a Black person or a faith leader to tell them that they are marginalized? That means that you're looking at that person totally through the white gaze. And you're looking at the lack of material wealth as a statement of their relevancy and their significance. When in fact, we all know that in God's kingdom and in God's eyes, we're all significant. We also know that with each other, we are also with our partners, with our families, with our friends, with, with, with our peers, we are significant. So for the 21st century, we have to talk in tongues. We have to talk about what it means to be marginalized in the empire, but significant with each other. Hmm. and with God. And that's an important message because what is the good news when you tell me that I'm the same thing that the empire says that I am? Hmm. And Ralph Ellison says, are we simply what white people made of us? Are we also what we make of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, for example, inclusion, inclusion is really looking at the world through the empire gaze. What we should be saying is democratization not inclusion, because if I say inclusion, that means that somebody is a subject, there's a subject there who owns the table, who has the power to include. But in God's kingdom and in God's creation, we're all beneficiaries of God's grace Mm. and God's banquet table. Mm. I hear you taking W.B. Du Bois' words to a new 21st century level. Remember, he's said the problem of the 21st century is the problem of the color line. Yes, yes. But I also think, Bishop, this is why it's really important. I also think that we have to understand that our European-American brothers and sisters who are out there in the streets, we have to understand that they represent a steady stream of a thirst and impulse for democracy. Uh And they have, and that has to be recognized. It's not simply because you, you miss the largeness of the moment if you simply think that they are there just for Black people and not all, only for something deeper also than Black lives, for the life of democracy. And, and because Black people have been the most vilified, the most dehumanized, and the most ostracized, and the most oppressed, we have become, as we were during the Southern Freedom Movement, a symbol of freedom and struggle around the world but no, make no bones about it, that it's really important to understand the largeness of this movement, that around the world, people are rising up against uh, a, a global white fascist elite group of people, 30%. They're rising up against that, and they're, and they're giving expression to the impulse of democracy. And so I think that it's really important to, to respond to that in a way that continues to encourage that growth and not simply ponder how long will people be out there, how long will their inclination to support black people 
last. The question is not, that's not the question. It's mm -hmm. the also how will they be able to continue to give expression to their own sense of smallness and irrelevancy in a globalist, scapless technocracy where very few lives matter and Black lives matter least of all lives. This is the moment. This is the time that we're in. This is a Kairos moment for the nation to take this, this, this time and, and understand the largeness of it and to understand that it underscores for us a very significant point that no lie lives forever. And that all unjust empires, the people ultimately rise up against those empires. It's almost Jonathan Daniels resurrected. We yes. seen the worst and we're seeing the best. Because there's always been in the Amer in the white American uh, a stream in white America that has trended towards pro-democracy. As imperfect as that stream has been, it's, it has its impulse has been a pro-democracy impulse. And mm -hmm. it has given rise to the labor movement. It has given rise to the peace movement. Mm -hmm. It has given rise to um, the, 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 the right to vote movement, the suffrage movement. It is, and those are streams towards democratization in a white supremacist male patriarchal world. Mm. You know, it, it does Carlisle's truth crushed to earth will rise again. Or, or Maya Angelou, and still like dust, I'll rise. Um, the the protests that are going on, even even as we speak, and they continue, um, are it is a rainbow people of God protesting. It, it it's not just us. And we have to gather the young people together and understand the common ground that they stand on. Uh -huh. That in the global world that I've described, where white men own the preponderance of the wealth. And where the vision, where the American dream in the future is a society where robots replace human labor. It is a society where of surveillance and containment in a technocracy as a way of stifling resistance and rebellion. You've got to understand that these young people, no matter their color, have no future in this country. Uh-huh. And they recognize and they understand that they also recognize and the gun culture underscores that these white men don't even love their own children. Yes. That's a value in the bodies of their own children do not matter over money and greed and power. Mm. And so that which they have spewed on, in, on other communities they're now spewing in their own homes. There have been 117 school shootings in the last two years. Yeah, children. Is it the case that Du Bois' statement about the 20th century and the color line, that in the 21st century, the real issue is does human life matter? Yes, that is the real issue. And, and the theological challenge as Jesus faced a challenge in first century Mediterranean culture, because I can imagine that lives were as disposable then as they have become now with demanufacturing and, and, the, and the fact that human labor doesn't have, doesn't, is not needed as much as it once was. 
the mere fact that people are struggling to eat where they live in rural communities with hospital and food deserts, no access to transportation, and that. And so I think that what, what, we, what spiritual leaders have to do is to develop a theological language that underscores our relevancy with God and each other. We have to develop a new social gospel, a liberating social gospel for the 21st century that raises us up from disposability in the eyes of the empire and underscores our significance to God and to each other. Mm. It reminds me of that passage in Ephesians where, where the writer says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. Yes. And so that's why we should not say anti-racist. Uh-huh. Because we our, 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 our protest, our resistance is against systems, yes. powers, principalities, governments, empires. Mm. And we have allowed this country to eviscerate the power of the federal government and to once again reinforce states' rights. The mere fact that the, that the president has abdicated his responsibility to attend to a national pandemic, a national humanitarian crisis. Let's be very clear, we're facing a humanitarian crisis in this country. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the president has abdicated that responsibility and put the power in the hands of the states to arbitrarily deal with this human uh, pandemic, with this humanitarian crisis, is nothing less than states' rights again. You, you, you tweeted the other day uh, on, on July 5th. And let me read you the tweet. What does it mean for the Supreme Court to reaffirm LGBTQ rights and abortion rights while simultaneously voting to reaffirm white supremacy with voter suppression of black and brown peoples requiring us to choose sex and gender over race? And then you just wrote the words cynical wedging. What did you mean by that? Oh, gosh, that's a whole long conversation, but let me try to say it this way. First of all, one of the tools of oppression that the system does is to wedge us against ourselves uh -huh. by reducing us to one identity, which is skin. Mm. And so by reducing our identities to one thing, which is skin, which is nothing, hmm. it causes us to assassinate our sexualities, our gender, our age, our religion, all of our multiple identities end up where we become victims of soul murder. And this is what's happened with that um, Supreme Court decision. It was a decision designed to appease white LGBTQ people and women, white women, to try to rebuild a coalition for, for, for the um, for the election and to try to rebuild, extend the white coalition. Now one would argue, yes, there are black LGBTQ people. And yes, there are, there are black women who uh -huh. also feel the same way about abortion. But the problem with that is yes, but then they turn around and require us to kill our black selves mm. by taking away our citizenship rights. And that's a very cynical 
process of soul murder. And, and so they're banking on a sort of political narcissism where white LGBTQ people and white women will feel that they've gotten what they wanted and now they will turn their backs on African-Americans. Because that worked, that worked during the progressive era, that worked during labor movements, that has always been their go-to strategy. But the mm. problem is, is that the 21st century is different because of their greed. They have eviscerated the meaning of whiteness for the ordinary white person. And so they won't be able to do it as successfully as they did in the 20th, 20th century. I got one more question. Yes. How come you haven't quit? You've been in this struggle a long time. You, 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 you've been running the long distance race, not, not the sprint. How do you keep going? Why haven't you quit and given up and just gone ahead and played bid with and joined the sorority and, you know, and all that that entails? Why haven't you quit, Ruby? <laughs> you know why? I wouldn't know what else to do. <laughs> I love that. Yes. It's in my blood. I mean, you're asking me why would I stop breathing? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. I mean, why haven't you quit, Bishop? You've been doing this for a long time. I'm sure some mornings you wake up and you say, My God. Ain't that the truth? Yes. But you can't quit. <laughs> and yet you keep on. Yep. I believe I'll run on to see what the end's going to be because there's something in the end that's waiting for me. Yeah. I believe I'll run on to see what the end's going to be. Mm. Mm. You know, when my mother was dying and, and we would take her to the living room the month before she died, uh-huh. and she would sit in the living room and she would ask Cheryl and me, Ruby, what's going to happen to the children? Mm. She worried so much about what was going to happen with future generations of Black children. Yes. And my point is, is that even in the midst of her dying, she was still involved with was trying to figure this all out for, for, for the nation and for Black people. Mm. And so I think that that's, that's the tradition that we inherit. Yes. Yeah, let's, I, I, don't, I wouldn't know what else to do. I would be lost. Your words remind me of Langston Hughes, Mother to Son. Don't you quit. Because life for me ain't been no crystal stairway. Ruby, you have blessed us. You are one of God's blessings. And like my grandma used to say, God will always have a witness. And you are one of those witnesses. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My mother would also say, echoing your grandmother, is that God's always going to have a ram in the bush. Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. It was really such a pleasure and such a challenge to try to answer your questions. Thank you so much. You are incredible. And God bless you. And you keep on keeping on. All right. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. If you'd like to learn more about Ruby Sales, visit the Spirit House Project at spirithouseproject.org. If you'd like to know more about how you can begin the work of going, 
check out our show notes for information on Becoming Beloved Community Now, racial reconciliation resources, and more. As always, you can learn more about Bishop Curry and the way of love, including how to create your own personal rule of life at episcopalchurch.org. Thanks this week to Ruby Sells, Bishop Curry, Nancy Davidge, Jerusalem Greer, Chris Sikama, Jeremy Tackett, and Scott Van Pletzen-Renz. I'm Sandy Millien, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world.